time for another great podcast from ICRT. But first, a message from one of our outstanding partners. Don't forget, more information and fun on the ICRT app or at icrt.com.tw. ICRT, listen with the world. Now open. Texas Roadhouse is bringing Taichung residents its delicious, juicy steaks and barbecue ribs. Located on Shizhong Road, Texas Roadhouse is looking forward to serving up legendary food, legendary service, and legendary fun. 美味的手工鮮切牛排,10月5日登陸台中,德州鮮切牛排台中店,位在西屯區市政路581-6號,傳奇性的美式風味,等你來嘗鮮! We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone once again from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And good evening. Tonight we talk President Tsai Ing-wen's island hopping in the Pacific, more news about laws to attract foreign professionals, warnings about joining China's Communist Party, the price of the president's car and who authorised it, and genetic markers. But we'll begin with the government releasing draft amendments to the Labour law this week, or as we possibly should say, amendments to last year's amendments to the Labour Standards Act. Of course, there's been much debate, some of it rather heated, in regards last December's passage of amendments to the Labour law and the Ministry of Labour this week announced that it's made five major draft revisions to the original revisions. One of the major revisions is to change the current rule that stipulates one mandatory day off and one flexible rest day per week and bans employees from working more than six consecutive days without a break. The amendments to the amendments will also allow employees to work 12 days in a row once they take one mandatory day off on either the end of the 12-day period. Regulations on overtime work are also being revised and the government has drafted two sets of amended rules here. The first, proposing to increase the maximum number of overtime hours per month from 46 to 54, while the second proposes allowing up to 54 hours of overtime per month, but a cap will be set at 138 hours overtime every three months. Now, daily work shift rules are also being changed by proposing a mandatory break of at least 11 hours between each eight-hour work shift or by allowing employers to negotiate a period of time off with their workers or labour unions. Now, unpopular regulations on unpaid annual vacation and flexi time are also being revised. But, of course, these changes haven't actually pleased everybody and some iry feelings still remain, Ross. Well, part of the problem is the complexity of what you just described. So the original law or changes to the law implemented last year were confusing enough. Now, because the implementation was very poor, frankly, and it did not make either labor or employers happy, uh, now we're, we're trying to fix it with something even more complex. Who could understand what you just said, Gavin? Almost nobody. I mean, the, the, the end result is going to be companies of, of various sizes, and, and these costs tend to be more of a burden for medium-sized or small companies rather than large corporations. Now they're going to need to hire more lawyers and human resources specialists to figure all this out. Instead of coming up with something that is easy to understand and actually facilitates employment, we're now adding another layer of regulation. And uh, we could see from events over the last 48, 72 hours that even the officials in the Ministry of Labor in, in the executive UN, Premier Lai and his team are having difficulty explaining what they want to do. 
Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Ross that the complexity is a problem, but there's some some advantages to the changes. Now, a lot of the big complaints, you know, as Ross, Ross noted, that obviously neither labor nor uh, businesses were happy with the uh, the original law. It was inflexible. It didn't uh, speak to a lot of the requirements of certain types of industries. This was a big deal, for example. Leading the charge against it was uh, the Nanto County Commissioner, Lee Minson, who actually got a lot of DPP support, uh, you know, uh, in local governments around the, the country, uh, because it didn't really take it didn't really take into account, uh, for example, you know, in, in Nanto specifically, there's a lot of tourism related business and there's a lot of agricultural related business, which of course is very seasonal. So you'll have long periods of extreme you're, you're extremely busy, and then you have periods where it's it's fairly lax. It also didn't take into account transportation industries and this sort of thing. Uh, however, in addressing it, there's some advantages to, uh, I've noticed in the proposed regulations, in that there's a lot more flexibility to allow uh, employer, employers and employees to come to their own agreements uh, and extend those periods of time where they can work straight and uh, up to, I believe it's 11 or 12 days. Uh, and then um, they also have the ability to move their uh, time off from one year into the next. So there's more flexibility built into it. The problem is there's also a lot of stipulations related on specific industries, and there's a, a lot more complexity added into it, which, uh, as Ross noted, could create a lot more complication, which is a big burden on small and medium-sized businesses. Well, what's interesting about what Donovan said is uh, he, he uh, pointed out two specific industries, uh, agriculture and tourism. The problem with this, with the changes to the law or the labor laws in general is it's one-size-fits-all approach. We're going to write something that applies to basically anyone who has a job, whether they're working in agriculture, tourism, in a radio studio like we're sitting today, uh, white-collar, financial services. I mean, we're just going overboard when, when the original genesis of, of uh, these kinds of productions was really to, to protect the most vulnerable people working on assembly lines, people who were unfairly, and we could agree on that, susceptible to employers saying work another shift on the assembly line. Uh, so, so we've just gone so overboard. And, and frankly, now we're still doing the same thing where we're making some adjustments and uh, it might be helpful for both employers and employees to make these changes because the changes made last year turned out to be so difficult to work with. But we're still regulating in a very micromanagement kind of way industries and labor situations, labor-employer relationships that frankly don't need this level of micromanagement by the government. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not entirely a, a one-size-fits-all, but as I, but that doesn't really sort of change Ross's point. Uh, it, like, for example, it says here, you know, the revision would shorten the minimum rest time between shifts for some industries. So what it's essentially is it's a one-size-fits-all, but it's, no, it's one-size-fits-all for your industry and a one-size-fits-all for another industry, which adds some flexibility, but it, it, it's still yet it's still kind of adding a straitjacket kind of across the board depending on what they determine your industry's needs are. So it's a little bit complicated there. Um, I do like that they're, they, they are expanding the, the ability of 
employees and employers to come to an agreement on a lot of uh, on a lot of aspects of it. But again, it's still kind of micromanaging. But that was one. Of, that's one of the gripes, though, isn't it? Because certain certain parties have dismissed these amendments to the amendments, arguing that they are in the employer's favour rather than the employee's favour because of the need to negotiate. And of course, the the poor workers have to negotiate with their bosses, and then they have to trust their bosses will follow through on what they've arranged to do. Well, the challenge with, with that uh, proposal is, has been talked in the media in the last 24, 48 hours is that uh, in a lot of labor employer situations, the employees, frankly, don't have any leverage. So uh, if these changes go through, it's, it's saying, okay, em- employees, you go talk to your boss and reach an agreement. But what, what, what critics are saying is that the employees in many situations simply lack that leverage, and that leverage might exist in larger companies where the employees are unionized, uh, but that's really only in large corporations, and it wouldn't apply in many small and medium-sized enterprises where the employees are not unionized. They're not uh, able to negotiate in a uniform, organized way the way a union would. So a lot of critics are already saying that that aspect of the revisions actually does help the employers more than it helps the employees. You're an employer, Donovan? Yeah, I am. So, if your employees had to work a specific number of days, would you be willing to come to an agreement with them? Uh, Yeah, I already do. I found it easier to uh, make sure that our employees have a lot more vacation time than than is mandated, um, because that helps build uh, long-term employee loyalty. So, most of our employees have been with us for over 10 years. but I, you know, it, you know, going to the leverage issue, I think a lot of it depends on particularly what industry. Uh, and unf- you know, the, on the one hand, it's good to have a lot of flexibility, as you know, both for employees and employers. Uh, and in a lot of industries, actually, a lot of the leverage is with the employees because there is a brain drain, and there's. Um, you know, and the working population is now starting to shrink. Unfortunately, the, the the areas or the specific industries where the employees have the least leverage are the tend to be the most vulnerable. Uh, uh, the most vulnerable employees and tend to be the lowest paid industries. Um, or conversely, they tend to be the highest ones, like doctors who might work. You know ridiculously long hours, but they may be doing so not so much entirely because their employer tells them to, but because of sort of the nature of the job. Ross, do you see maybe labor disputes increasing? Oh, well, we see a lot of confusion over the last uh, year after the revised labor law was passed and implemented. And if these proposed revisions were to be enacted into law, which is very likely given the DPP's majority in the legislative UN, I I think it's more likely there's just going to be confusion as opposed to disputes. Uh, I I don't see labor protesting that they're being made to work too many hours. And as we know, if anything, labor was frustrated because the changes to the law made it difficult to work more hours when employees actually wanted to. And employers said, sorry, I can't give you more hours in the office or the assembly line or on the farm or whatever the industry, uh, because I'm now constricted by this law. I think these changes don't, or the proposed changes, don't address that aspect. So uh, it will lead to confusion and frustration. We're, we're, we're not going to make 
either side happy, either side being uh, employers or employees. And I, I, I think we see in, in the last few days that, again, unions, non-unionized employees and employers, no, nobody is saying, great job, government. We're really happy with these proposed revisions. It may, it, we don't see that. No, I think, in fact, everybody, Ross, including me here, is waiting for the amendments to the amendments of the amendments. Well, a- again, um, that that is just going to lead to not just confusion, but costs. Costs to employers who are, as I said before, they're going to need lawyers. They're going to need consultants, human resources specialists to navigate the amendments to the amendments or the amendments to the amendments to the amendments, as you suggested. And that, that that's just a lot of cost for employers with a lot of confusion for a result that makes nobody happy. And, and that, that actually will not promote more hiring. or or So it doesn't promote job growth. And it won't promote wage growth either, which is a, a significant concern of employees in Taiwan. Right. And then we'll move on. And we'll move on to President Tsai Ing-wen, who jetted off on a three-state visit to Taiwan's diplomatic allies in the Pacific this week. Those allies being the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu and the Solomon Islands. Now, Tsai Ing-wen made a brief stopover in Honolulu, where she met with American Institute and Taiwan Chairman James Moriarty. Now, the meeting came after Moriarty called on the Tsai administration to address concerns in Washington in regards to Taiwan's dwindling defence budget. And National Security Council's Secretary General Tsai Ming-yen was quoted as saying that the Tsai administration is drawing up a comprehensive plan to meet long-term and short-term military needs and to strengthen defence capabilities. Nothing new in that statement. Now, apparently during this meeting with Moriarty, President Tsai Ing-wen also promised to boost Taiwan's defence budget by at least 2% each year. Now, the Ministry of National Defence budget for 2018 has seen an increase of 1.9% from this year already. And defence spending now stands at 2% of GDP, or around 325 billion NT. Now, the government has been harping on for, well, a long time, not just this government, but previous governments have also harped on about vowing to push their defence budgets up to 3% of GDP, well, numerous occasions. Too many occasions for me to say. So, Ross, this 2%, 3% increase in defence spending, is it going to make a difference when it's put in, like, she's expanding the current to 2% when it's already been expanded to 1.9%? Oh, well, also you have to factor in uh, various cutbacks. So, for example, uh, with the announcement by Premier Lai within days of taking office in September that civil servants are going to get a salary increase, uh, that that also caused uh, the Executive UN to ask every government ministry to find some cuts as well. And and every ministry had to offer up some cuts, and that included the Ministry of National Defense. So we're basically putting us back to where we were before the the wage increase, uh, whether it's in defense or uh, other ministries of the government. Uh, 2% increase year on year, which barely keeps up with the pace of inflation. Uh, that's assuming one actually believes the official inflation figures. Uh, really is not going to uh, address Taiwan's defense needs in the way that they need to address. And it's, it's certainly not going to cause China to reduce the 
the pressure it's putting on Taiwan's military. And when I say pressure on Taiwan's military, I'm not referring to an imminent invasion, as has been speculated recently uh, due to a, a new book uh, by a U.S. scholar, but uh, the exercises, right, the, the naval and air exercises that China's doing with, with greater uh, frequency. That puts a, a large amount of pressure on the Taiwan military because Taiwan then has to respond. They have to fly their own sorties. They have to put more ships uh, out to sea to monitor, to, to show that Taiwan can respond. This is costing the Ministry of National Defense a lot of money and, and probably not something they had anticipated in their long-term budget planning a few year, just a few years ago. So this 2% year-on-year uh, -year increase is, is grossly inadequate. Yeah, you know, you know, a lot of people talk about how China has a, you know, increases is increasing their military budget by double digits. Now, of course, everybody then has to qualify because nobody really knows for sure. But it fundamentally comes down to China's rapidly increasing their military spending, whether it's in the double digits or not. Um, and it seems like two percent, or in some reports, I've seen three percent, is what they're, what Tsai uh, is pushing. Seems like it's kind of trailing, and as Ross noted, between the the latest increases in, uh, you know, in labor costs, uh, inflation, which is you know, a little over one percent, uh, and then. Um, you know the increases in China's military spending, plus China now you know is rapidly increasing again, as Ross noted, the amount of sorties and exercises and regular uh, flybys that they're conducting around Taiwan. Uh, so it's rapidly increasing the pressure on Taiwan's military, and so their spending is going to have to go up. You know, every single time they you know they send out a sortie with you know with the jets, that costs a huge amount of money. Um, so, you know, it seems to me like that amount of money, that 2% or 3%, is not going to really make a dent. It's just going to cover the increased costs. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really see that there's any, that's going to any, make any major improvements. It's not a step forward. It's keeping up the pace as to where it is now. And of course, those comments in Honolulu were on the first day of her, well, before she'd even arrived into the Pacific Allies. But anyway, Tsai Ing-wen went on to travel, like I said, to the Marshall Islands, first of all, where she oversaw the Taipei Medical University of Shuanghe, signing an agreement with the Marshall Islands Ministry of Health and Human Services. Now, the President of the Republic of the Marshall Islands voiced her strong support for Taiwan joining the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Tuvalu's Prime Minister said that his country will always remain Taiwan's friends based on their common values, while the Solomon Islands government also echoed its support for Taiwan's diplomatic friendship. So, of course, there was a bit of a, a question over the Solomon Islands visit, of course, Ross, because, of course, the Pre Prime Minister there, rather, had just got, had a vote of no confidence. The timing was certainly uh, uncomfortable, uh, to say the least, for uh, President Tsai and her delegation. There's been some criticism that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Taiwan didn't do enough homework to map out when there might be political developments occurring there and, and whether or not it would uh, be a, a bit of negative news that was uh, occurring simultaneous to President Tsai's trip. That's unfortunate. You know, frankly, Gavin, uh, I don't think anyone in Taiwan really cares about the vicissitudes of Solomon Island's politics. 
politics. Uh, people in Taiwan do care that there are countries that maintain formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. But uh, where these countries are uh, really is not a concern. And I, I think it's fair to say that President Tsai's trip, although important, has not made much of an impact on the public. Right? We don't see the, the public saying, wow, great job, Madam President. We're so glad you're flying the flag of Taiwan outside of Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, there was a few interesting things out of the trip. Uh, obviously, her landing in uh, Hawaii with the, and the, the meeting with Moriarty, which, uh, uh, or however you pronounce his name, uh, which, of course, uh, China uh, called a deplorable uh, stopover in Hawaii. Um, she, of course, also uh, enacted or said she was going to enact a visa-free entry for uh, the Pacific Allies. Uh, but none of these countries have direct flights to Taiwan, so that's kind of a, a – so it's going to have a virtually no impact. Uh, and the populations of these countries are so tiny um, that if every single citizen of every one of these little countries came in, it would be a blip on uh, Taiwan's radar. Um, now, what's also interesting is that uh, she's going to drop over, stop over in Guam, which is uh, very interesting. Apparently, the legislature there is going to uh, – uh, greet her with a, and uh, will present her with a legislative resolution honoring the visit. Um, but yeah, as Ross noted, I don't think the average person in Taiwan really cares very much. The timing with the Solomon Islands was bad, uh, and and as you noted in your intro, all of these ones, you know, reiterated how much they love Taiwan, and you know, the Solomon Islands talked about their deep friendship and Tuvalu, and you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think fundamentally this is a trip based on shoring up those relationships and uh, helping to keep the potential for China to poach them. Now, of course, China could probably poach them at any time if they really wanted to. Well, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Panama said the same thing when President Tsai went there in June of 2016, shortly after her inauguration, right? They made the same statements about, you're our friend, we love you, thank you for all your, your uh, development assistance. And six months later, they... Uh, cut ties with Taiwan and established uh, formal relations with China. Uh, so uh, I think all those statements in the three countries by their uh, elected leaders uh, are out of um, courtesy because the president of, t of Taiwan uh, is on the ground. But we shouldn't take those statements to mean that they're, they're not susceptible to switching relations, frankly, at any time. Anyway, we shall move on from now there. Anyway, of course, the government this week actually passed its new laws aimed at attracting more foreign professionals to Taiwan. And the Act for the Recruitment of Employment of Foreign Professional Talent eases regulations regarding visas, work permits, taxes, insurance, pension and residency for foreign professionals and their families. Now, we've talked about this before with Donovan on the show when the government first put this proposal forward. And this week, of course, it was rubber stamped. Now, one of the backers of the bill is KMT lawmaker at large, Jason Sh who I spoke with earlier this week. So obviously you supported this law from the get-go. Do you think it should have been passed the way it is? Obviously opponents have said it might have been some changes should have been involved. Yeah, so absolutely. So I am the uh, uh, co-sponsor of this bill. I actually also put forth a draft myself to ensure the uh, foreign professionals' uh, spouse and a family's uh, health benefits and the, the labour rights. Um, so I, I believe right now we are facing a critical juncture, and we need to be Taiwan needs to be more open to all kinds of talents. And 
for some of the controversial articles in this bill, we actually rule out the the the, the article that would originally allow um, the uh, students who graduated from uh, overseas who come to Taiwan on a uh, uh, professional training visa to to look for jobs. We actually uh, end up taking that article out. So that was one part. Well, that was one article that was controversial. And and secondly, we people were worried about that opening up to foreign professionals would end up uh, eating up a lot of uh, jobs vacancies for locals. Um, so I I actually disagree because uh, this is uh, for uh, the jobs that are requiring bilingual sk- uh, skills uh, as well as companies that who would need uh, native speakers or foreigners who would originally work here and for uh, they wanted to start a business or they are artists or they are self-employed um, uh, professionals this is this law will allow them to uh, to be able to obtain a legal status right and do you see it attracting a lot of foreign talent uh, so I think this is a, a kind of a chicken and egg question. Uh, the problem is uh, Taiwan's fundamental economic outcome outlook is still uh, pretty stagnant. And in order to attract uh, foreigners or foreign professionals, we need to make sure uh, there's enough of incentives for them to come here. We've done so with uh, tax deduction and health benefits and etc. But overall, if 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 we want more foreign talents to come, we we need to make sure that there there are enough of um, Opportunities here for for foreigners to thrive professionally. So, for example, um, if if a high-paying professional choose a managerial job, he might choose end up choosing uh, Shanghai or Singapore over Taipei because of the level of salary that a company can afford. So, I think um, one thing is that we need still need to work on boosting our uh, uh, fundamental economy. And secondly, I, I think I think we should encourage more local, uh, small, medium-sized companies to start hiring foreigners to for them to expand their business overseas. So, for example, uh, government has a new southbound policy, so we should encourage them to hire more Southeastern Asian um, for nationals, and for for them to to be able to work there as well. And do you see maybe in a few months or next year expanding the law? To cover other issues that attract foreigners here to Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. So this is again. I I spoke to uh, the uh, commissioner of a national development council, and she 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 told me that she's working on uh, putting together a uh, uh, expansion of uh, uh, on the law and and actually speaking to different uh, uh, organizations and to see how the law is. Being implemented, um, and also in in one of the resolutions uh, we made in the in the committee review is for the law to have a six month period uh, review period uh, as well to look at how well it is going. So hopefully next year uh, we will see some changes uh, made as well. That was KMT lawmaker at large Jason Shu. So Ross, what do you think? Well, the the challenge here is going to be uh, multi. 
multifaceted. One is the implementation. So how do government agencies roll this out as far as what the implementing regulations say? Uh, because the law is at, a, is at a high level, and then at the micro level, the relevant agencies, whether it's the Ministry of Labor, uh, whether it's the tax administration, uh, or even uh, the overseas offices of Taiwan, the representative offices and embassies, which grant visas uh, and do the front line for interviews. And there's a section in the law to give a six-month job search visa. Uh, so the implementation is going to be a challenge and something worth monitoring. Secondly, uh, even with a smooth implementation, whether or not there's an environment in Taiwan that's of interest to senior level white collar foreign professionals really is something that this law cannot address. So whether the economy is vibrant, uh, whether it's a place that uh, executives want to be based uh, uh, for conducting, say, a regional business, uh, that that is an unresolved issue that this law doesn't address. There's also been concerns about the immigration laws and this law. Well, yeah, that, that goes to the implementation. So it's going to involve a number of different agencies who don't often uh, coordinate well. And uh, trying to implement this in a way that is smooth really is a challenge and remains to be seen. Right. And we have to take a short break right now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll open this half of the show with the Mainland Affairs Council saying that ROC nationals who joined China's Communist Party could be fined between 100,000 and 500,000 NT. Now, this is a reaction to Kaohsiung-born Lu Li-an serving as a delegate to the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, and a Taiwanese student who's studying at Peking University, recently reportedly telling Hong Kong media that he's planning to join the Communist Party of China after China's two sessions next year. Now, both of these people are obviously strong believers in unification, but, I mean, should they be fined? Well, what the law says is that uh, if you obtain a residency, HUCO, uh, household registration in China, then you lose your uh, residency here in Taiwan. Uh, that That's one aspect of, of the law. Another aspect of the law is a fine for joining official organizations in China, like political parties taking up employment with the government and agency, et cetera. So there's two different aspects of, of the law here in Taiwan, which is why the, the case of Lulian and, and uh, this uh, PhD student are handled differently. Uh, but, but it does go to a fundamental question of whether or not we're finding people uh, for their beliefs. And uh, a more difficult question is, should people have their citizenship, citizenship that they obtained uh, by by birthright? Um, should that be revoked? Uh, I think the public is probably okay with that. It's it's a bit unusual from, uh, a, frankly, a Western perspective, which obviously I'm bringing to this conversation. And I do work very often on citizenship issues because I'm involved with a, an American expatriate advocacy organization. Uh, and we look at issues about acquiring citizenship or losing citizenship. Uh, and to revoke one's citizenship uh, because of their beliefs, as opposed to, say, uh, taking up arms and fighting one's government. Uh, that, that's a very draconian step to take. Yeah, there was a hundred and uh, no, a few years ago, there was a hundred and I forget the exact number, 168 or something like that, um, Taiwanese who had positions uh, in China, and they uh, and the they already cut they already cut them off a long time ago. 
so now they say that that's in the low double digits, like 16 or 19 now. So they've already been taking action on this for quite a while. So this is not really a new thing uh, that they're, you know, that they're creating this whole new law. is just simply a reaction to recent media reports that they look like they're doing something. But they've already been doing doing things for quite a while now. Well, again, the, the public seems to be supportive of these measures, uh, although they are quite draconian. And uh, the reality is the number of people with Taiwan nationality and citizenship, which are actually two different concepts, uh, who have a household registration in China is probably low uh, because obtaining household registration in China is extraordinarily difficult and it's probably going to be awarded under uh, exceptional circumstances to somebody from Taiwan. However, the number of people from Taiwan, Taiwan citizens or nationals who are working in government organizations in China is probably far, far higher, probably in the hundreds, if not the thousands. Uh, and it's very difficult for the government to obtain information about that. I think a lot of them are in, in sort of unofficial uh, positions, but yeah. Right. Anyway, we'll move on and we'll talk about the president's car, which became a topic of conversation this week, with some questioning the price tag and others questioning who was it signed off on the price tag on the first place. Now, the presidential office opted for an Audi A8L model, which replaced the BMW series car used by President Ming Zhou when he was in office. Now, Audi Volkswagen Taiwan won the contract to supply the president's car in a tender for the nine official state cars for the president and vice president in 2016. And Audi beat pan-German motors with a bit of 24.98 million NT for the nine vehicles. So were they overpriced? And is there a problem really here, Ross, with what car the president drives? Well, right now there seems to be some finger pointing at uh, go ask the other person uh, as to who thought it was necessary to replace the the cars used by Mayan Joe, uh, and nobody wants to admit that they were the person who said that it's necessary to replace the previous vehicles. Uh, were, were they uh, not safe enough for the president? Uh, what, what is the level of safety? I mean, we have to weigh that against the threat assessment for the president. What kind of threats, uh, whether uh, there's threats from uh, gunfire, uh, bombs, uh, other types of uh, attacks on the motorcade. Uh, so that should be factored in. It seems like it wasn't. Uh, you know, that the, the, ten, the, the desire was, well, let's get the, the latest new toy and we'll just spend a lot of money on it. And now nobody wants to take responsibility. That's really unfortunate because ultimately this is the taxpayer's money. And it seems like the, the civil servants and the elected officials or the appointed officials over at the presidential office were, were a bit sloppy in this case. Yeah, I the uh, I mean here's what the newspaper report says here it says they while the vehicle's VR nine armor package does not offer the highest level of ballistic protection afforded by the VR ten package it meets all requirements and then it goes on to say it can protect passengers for all kinds of rifle bullets and hand grenades it's got an emergency respirator in case of airborne chemical or biological attacks. Um, so I, a lot of the argument seems to be is this the best we could have gotten is this what, what is necessary, and of course, there's been a lot of talk recently. You know, with, uh, as Ross talked about earlier, that book that came out. Although that the uh, press tended to jump all over that book and say that China is going to attack by 2020, which is pretty much the opposite of what the book said. But a lot of what uh, was in that book and a lot of speculation recently are decapitation attacks. Um, 
So, and of course, you know, the Taiwan's moved the military in closer to the capital to help protect against that sort of thing. But really, really, my suspicion is, you know, this kind of vehicle that they've got now is great for any kind of attack that's going to come from, say, a domestic uh, assassin or any of those kinds of things. But if China really wanted to take that vehicle out, they probably could. Uh, if they can find her, and uh, you know, with if they had a, a short enough time window, and that's the tricky part because they'd have to, it would be telegraphed by the time it arrived if it was a missile or that sort of thing. So it's probably an adequate vehicle for what's needed. Uh, but yeah, the the question is, is you know, who approved the the budget and what are the needs? Well, there we go. Maybe she should have just used a Volkswagen Golf, and everybody would be happy, including yeah, the tax. Ten of them, and just. She only needs one of them. She's an individual, one person. Nobody needs more than one car, Donovan. That's my (laughs) policy on the matter anyway. Anyway, before we go, some controversy was caused this week with an article which quoted a well-known researcher of blood, blood blood-forming organs and blood diseases. And she also happens to be a medical anthropologist. Now, she was in the headlines for saying that Taiwanese should be considered ethnically distinct from Han Chinese as a majority are more closely related to Aboriginal Australasians and Pacific Islanders. Speaking at her book launch this week, Marie Lin said decades of research using molecular technology to analyse human DNA and genetic markers have convinced her that most Taiwanese are descendants of lowland and highland Aborigines and are distinct from the genetic characteristics of the two main ethnic groups in China, those being the Northern and Southern Han Chinese. So, Donovan, you, you apparently like this article to begin with but then fell out of love with it quite quickly yeah she went on to say quote genetic contributions from the ping pu and aboriginal bloodlines gave taiwanese the traits of adventurous ambition open hospitality to outsiders and a positive sunny disposition in general she said so essentially she's saying that the genetics determine determine our personality and determine our ethnicity and by implication she's implying nationality um this is this is a basically it's a political move uh kind of to excite you know local nationalists in reaction to um the late qing era you know roc uh, ethnic state concept of china which of course the prc picked up on which in itself was kind of a response to European colonialism. So it's really, it's all nonsense, really. Um, the, it's, a, it's a political move. Now, it may, be tr- it may well be true, and there's some indications that, uh, and if you look at it historically, there's definitely a lot of in, you know, uh, ethnic mix uh, across populations in Taiwan. That's definitely a historical fact, and presumably that would be a genetic one. But her methods were completely unsound. Uh, she took, and she's quite famous for this, she uh, would take samples from people without informing them what they were ta- she was taking them for. Uh, she followed a lot of very unsound scientific practices. And again, it's, it's mostly just a political move. This is not sound science on her part. 
Well, one thing we know from those qualities that she listed, such as uh, hospitality, sunny disposition, clearly Gavin is is not descended from hey, Aboriginals. That's my middle name, Gavin. Gavin, sunny disposition, Phipps. But, but uh, in a, at some level, uh, my reaction to this is so what, right? So as as Donovan pointed out, it's not news that um, there are many people in in Taiwan who have a mixture of both Han and Aboriginal blood. Uh, the, the longer one could trace their family's presence in Taiwan back uh, one century, two century, three centuries, uh, back to the point where uh, Han Chinese started to migrate, or people from Fujian, if you want to make a distinction and say they're not Han, that, that, that's, that's fine. Uh, the, the longer one could trace a family history on this island, the more likely it is that there, there is an aboriginal relative going back uh, one, two, or earlier generations. That is not news. But so what? What does it mean? Are, are we going to have a DNA test to say who could be a, a citizen of Taiwan? To find out, Ross, who has sunny dispositions. Well, we'll start with you, Gavin. Uh, I do. I do suspect that you're not going to qualify. Uh, but, but again, so what? Uh, it, it, are, are we going to exclude people? Are we, are we going to say that somebody who does not have an Aboriginal heritage is is any less committed to Taiwan? You know, that 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 would just be a ridiculous proposition. So, uh, her academic research might be useful. Her political statement is ridiculous. And that's where we'll leave Taiwan this week, because we're all three of us today have sunny dispositions, even though the weather is really miserable. Anyway, I've been joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend, Gavin. Of the sunny disposition. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith, who has an equally sunny disposition. That's right. Evidence of my ping poo roots. There you go. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps, where you can get Get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.